Almighty God, who alone can order the unruly wills and affection of sinful men, grant to us, your people, that we might love what you command and desire what you promise, so that among the many and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When you read Matthew's Gospel account of those who came to John to be baptised in the Jordan, it's clear that those singled out as a brood of vipers are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's typical of Matthew, who writes largely for a Jewish readership. But Luke's different. He's a Gentile, and he's writing largely for a Gentile readership. Indeed, in chapter 1, he explicitly states that he's writing an orderly account for his friend, the most excellent Theophilus. So when John the Baptist excoriates the unrepentant, Luke says that he's speaking to the crowd, those coming out to be baptised. Of course, we know that this brood of vipers does refer to the religious Jews. Because John clearly says in verse 8, Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. At this stage, that's a privilege given only to the Jews. And what a privilege it was. As Paul says to the Romans, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever praised. What extraordinary privileges these are. But these Jews saw all of that simply as a birthright. They had no sense of gratitude because they had no sense of grace. They thought that ancestry made them sons of God. That they thought that circumcision set them apart as holy to God. They thought that the law justified them before God. And they thought that only the Gentiles were sinful and that sinful, sinfulness meant being what they were not. As Donald Trump once famously remarked when asked about repentance, he said this, Why do I have to repent or ask forgiveness if I'm not making mistakes? I work hard and I'm an honourable person. And that's a little bit how these Jews were thinking. Repentance was for sinners, but not them. Like Donald, they thought they were honourable people. But John knew that they were neither honourable nor righteous. John knew that God had chosen Israel to be a vineyard. He'd cleared stones and planted them on a fertile hillside. He'd built a watchtower and cut out a winepress as well. But now... Well, they only bore bad fruit. And God's judgment on them is that just as surely as he can raise children of Abraham from stones, so too can he raise an axe against the root of every tree that does not produce good fruit. Every branch that bears the fruits of unrighteousness will be thrown into the fire for destruction. 
Now, neither Matthew or Luke tell us how the Pharisees and Sadducees responded. But subsequent encounters with these teachers of the law would suggest that indignation and disgust was their more likely response rather than repentance and faith. But when it comes to the crowd, they had no trouble seeing themselves as being in need. So they ask in verse 10, what then should we do? And so John gives them clear direction as to what fruit in keeping with repentance actually looks like. For everyone, repentance means sharing from our abundance with those who have lack. It's there in verse 11. Anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. And though that seems pretty straightforward, we shouldn't think that this is a work that we do to gain favour with God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, and if God has blessed us with much, then abundance to be shared is not a reflection of our inherent righteousness or skill or labour. It's a reflection of God's faithfulness, mercy and grace. How we choose to share God's good gifts with each other and our neighbours will be a measure of either our sense of entitlement and self-righteousness or our sense of gratitude and repentance. We're blessed to be a blessing, not gifted to be a legend. As for tax collectors, the fruit of their repentance is in verse 13. Don't collect any more than you're required to. And what the Roman governors required of them was sufficient, firstly, to meet the Roman quota of tax, and secondly, to recompense the tax collectors for their labours. Any more than that would be greed. Greed born out of graft and deceit. It could certainly make the tax collectors very wealthy, <coughs> but it meant cheating the people. It meant demanding more money than was necessary, more than what was required. You know the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector? Though in deceit Zacchaeus had become very wealthy, it was in repentance that he paid back four times the amount to those he had cheated. And on that day, salvation came to Zacchaeus' house. For on that day, Zacchaeus was truly a son of Abraham because of his faith in the Son of God. Then there's the soldiers. But for them, the fruit of repentance is in verse 14. Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And that's not very different to that of the tax collectors. And though it's not stated if these were Roman or Jewish soldiers, it's very likely that they were Jewish, officers of the temple guard, the very ones whom Judas conspired with to betray Jesus and come with him and the chief priests to illegally arrest Jesus under the cloak of darkness in the garden. Repentance for them, like the tax collectors and indeed everyone, meant loving your neighbour as yourself, at the very least. And there is only one commandment more important than that, and that's loving God first, so that we might love our neighbour second. 
Now, of course, John's message was not a type of moralism. He wasn't saying, be good and kind to one another, and the world will be a better place. That's the sort of thing that with John Lennon, we can only imagine. But John the Baptist, he was doing something very different. He was preparing the way for the Lord. The Lord who would fill in every valley and make low every mountain and hill. Straighten every crooked road and make smooth every rough way. And as far as John was concerned, the coming of the Lord meant that all people would see God's salvation. And God's salvation is not a vision of nice people on the clouds. God's salvation is the flesh and blood reality of God incarnate, of one who baptises with the Holy Spirit and fire. It's the reality of one who comes as much to judge as to save. Just as a shepherd's staff separates sheep from goats, so too does a winnowing fork separate wheat from chaff. The former is gathered into God's kingdom as wheat into a barn, and the latter is gathered for judgment as chaff to be burnt with unquenchable fire. Now that certainly sounds like the coming of the Messiah, but it certainly doesn't sound like baby Jesus, meek and mild. This sounds more like Zephaniah's description of the coming of the Lord, the King of Israel. And that's who Jesus is. He's the King. The angels announce him as Saviour, Messiah and Lord, and the wise men describe him as the one born King of the Jews. And as the King, as the Lord God who is with us, he comes as a mighty warrior who saves. He delights in those whom he loves, and he rejoices over us with singing. But as King and mighty warrior, he also comes to remove that which is a burden and reproach to his people. And he deals in judgment with all who oppress his people. For his purpose is to rescue the lame, to gather the exiles, and to bring his people home. And brothers and sisters, that, that's us. That we are God's people if by repentance and faith we've committed our trust to Christ Jesus the Lord. And that's the thing about repentance and faith. You see, they always go together. We, we can't be like Donald Trump who says he believes but can find no obvious need to repent. It seems pretty clear to me that if you do believe, then you and I have every reason to repent. Because believing recognises not only the heights of God's mercy and grace, but also the depths of our own wretchedness and sin. Salvation is for the lame, and the exile, the sick, the sinner, and the lost. And if you can't recognise yourself there, then salvation is not for you, only judgement. And it doesn't matter if you're Anglican or Presbyterian or Baptist. It doesn't matter if you're baptised or confirmed.
confirmed or even ordained, God's axe will go to the root of any tree that doesn't produce good fruit. And what's cut off isn't gathered in, it's burned with unquenchable fire. Now I hope it's clear that repentance and faith not only must always go together, it's also clear, I hope, that repentance and faith nearly always means more than what we give credit for. Take repentance, for example. In the history of the church, there have been some who believe that repentance and penance have meant the same thing. In that case, three Hail Marys and a Hallelujah Chorus became sufficient recompense to earn you forgiveness of sin. Now, if that was correct, then it makes Christ's sacrifice on the cross only a part, a part measure in our salvation. That meet him halfway seems to be the message and complete what Christ has only left half finished seems to be the implication. But that's not going to work because it's just not true. If Christ and Christ alone does not save us, then nothing else and no one else will, least of all ourselves. Now, of course, repentance can be misunderstood in other ways as well. Some think that repentance is something that you do once when you first believe and then need not come back to it. And again, this is not going to work either because it's just not true. Whilst ever sin continues to be an ongoing problem in your life, then repentance will continue to be an ongoing need in your life. That's why we take up our cross daily and die to vain glory so that we might live to God's glory. That's why as Anglicans we make a corporate confession of our sins every week. God's mercies are new every morning because so too are our sins. But in my experience, the most common misunderstanding of repentance is that it's somehow merely a minor adjustment. A minor adjustment to a life that's basically on course. A mere tinkering on the margins of a mostly well-ordered life. But I have to tell you, it's not that at all. That repentance means turning around and going in the opposite direction. Religious hypocrisy, for example, and mere formalism, that's not a minor deviation from God's will. That's an affront. It attributes a righteousness to oneself that can only ever come from God. It's a self-righteous march away from God, and it's the shortest route to the unquenchable fires of hell. It's an affront that demands being rooted out with an axe and thrown into the fire. And when it comes to questions put to John by the crowd, by the tax collectors and the soldiers, his summary response was that repentance meant loving your neighbour as yourself. It meant sharing with others out of your abundance, working to serve others and not to cheat them. It meant being happy with a just recompense for your labours. Now we like to think that we're quite good at that, at loving our neighbour. 
But if the story of the Good Samaritan is any measure of that, then I'm confident that we're not very good at it at all. I'm pretty sure that all of us have more than a couple of shirts to wear. My guess is that some of you would have enough shoes in the cupboard to shot a small family of centipedes. And whilst I don't think for a moment that any of you would be involved in graft or corruption or money laundering, I'm pretty sure that, like me, give us this day our daily bread is not a prayer you say with fear and trembling. Repentance, therefore, doesn't have to be giving up all our worldly possessions to the poor, but it must mean giving up any sense of ownership of what rightly belongs to God. It must mean seeing ourselves as stewards of God's good grace. It must mean loving one another as Christ has first loved us. And it must mean considering one another as better than ourselves. But our natural impulse is to do the opposite of those things. To revert to selfishness and looking after our own. Looking out for number one. And if that's our natural impulse, and I'm pretty sure it is, then that's a path towards idolatry and away from God. And from that we need to repent, to shun idolatry and turn to serve the living God. Now, I don't want you to think that the call to repentance and faith is an exhortation to pull up your socks, try harder and just do better. I don't want you to do that because it just doesn't work. And I know that from personal experience. You keep failing as you do, and it will cause you despair. Get the externals mostly right, as you may, and it will make yourself righteous and proud. Now, re repentance is not about doing better. Repentance is about reversing the affections of your heart. And faith, it's not about believing with greater affection. It's about changing the object of your affections. And if that sounds like a radical change of heart and mind and soul and will, then that's exactly what it is. And so extraordinary is it, well, it's like being baptised with the Holy Spirit and fire. A Holy Spirit who abides in us and seals us until the day of redemption. A Holy Spirit who puts God's law in our minds and writes it on our hearts. It's like being purified with a refiner's fire, having all our wickedness forgiven and our sins remembered no more. It's like being so changed from the inside out that we're a new creation. It's like dying to self with Christ and rising to a new life in Him. And if that's what repentance and faith is like, and it is, then the fruit of repentance is not the expression of our goodness, but the expression of our gratitude. Our gratitude for love and mercy and salvation.
so freely offered. And because saving faith is not determined by the intensity of our feelings, but the object of our affections, then it's worth asking, who is the sole object of our faith and affection? And the answer is, the one whom John the Baptist points to, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one whose sandal straps we are unworthy to untie, the one who comes with a winnowing fork in his hand, the one who baptises with the Holy Spirit and fire. The good news of God is that the one who is coming, well, he's already come, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So, brothers and sisters, if you have fallen, as we all do, then repent and do the works you did at first. If you have no saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, no faith that's reordered every priority in your life and changed your heart and soul and mind, no faith that makes all things new, then again, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and so that he might send into your life the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Amen.